jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. We're still in the beginning of chapter 5, page 286 in your city. Last week we talked about numerology. Because the Mishnah has an emphasis in numerology by that when Hashem created the world, He used ten utterances, or spoke ten times, as it were. It's not to be taken literally, God doesn't have a palate or teeth and a tongue. It's a metaphor. And just as when we wish to communicate an idea, something that's in our heart or in our mind, we speak, and by virtue of our speech, somebody else is able to gain insight into what's hidden or what's inside us. So too, in order to bring creation into reality, in order for something to exist outside of godliness, there has to be speech. This is the metaphor of divine speech. So God spoke ten times. This process, which we are calling speech, took place ten times. And the Mishnah said that the reason that it took place ten times was in order to exact payment from the wicked who destroy the world that was created or who caused the world to unravel that was created with these ten utterances. And to give proper remuneration to tzaddikim who sustain the world that was created with ten utterances. So the focus of today's class is going to be God's mercy. Or if you prefer God, colon, merciful, question mark. I want you to take a look at the Mishnah and tell me if you see mercy or not. Does that seem to be a merciful statement? Does that seem to be a compassionate statement? Or maybe something very different? Take the time, look at the Mishnah and tell me. The Mishnah to you speaks about God's compassion because he could have created the world with, quote, one utterance. Instead, he bent himself out of shape and created the world with ten utterances. And that's a compassionate thing because that way our reward or our success is that much more valuable. Everybody agree with that? So you say the Mishnah, this shows how God's giving us an opportunity. Everybody here sees opportunity. Nobody disagrees? So I'll disagree. You see compassion in this Mishnah, I find it very interesting. The Mishnah says God could have created the world with one utterance, but He chose not to. Why? Why did He take the time or the effort to create the world with ten utterances? Because, look inside, to punish the wicked. Oh, by the way, yes, and also to give reward to the tzaddikim. So what does the Mishnah say first? To punish the wicked or to give reward to the tzaddikim? See, all you are ladies, you all think of things in compassionate nature naturally. See? A man looks at it differently. So you, you look at the Mishnah, you kind of skip the first line. Yeah, whatever, okay, punishment. Oh, you went straight to the second half. But gentlemen are less compassionate. So, maybe more realistic also sometimes. I'm looking at the Mishnah, and it, to me it says, God created a world to give punishment. Does that sound very compassionate? It sounds like the exact opposite of compassion. There is a compassionate edge to it. In other words, there is superiority with a world that's created through ten utterances, because ultimately we can gain something. 
But the emphasis of the Mishnah, that which is front, right, and center is Lihipada min harashayim. To exact punishment, to exact payment, to punish the wicked. Why would God do that? Make a world in what utterance? And that way you won't have to punish people so much. Does God delight in punishing people? You say no. The Mishnah says yeah. Because you could have done it in one utterance, and instead he chose ten utterances. Come on, God. Couldn't you go a little easier with us? Obviously, God is compassionate. That's a basic, basic principle of our faith. The question is, how do we reconcile this Mishnah? And the answer, invariably, in a class like this, is going to lie, and we have to revisit the concept of Rasha and Sadiq, of righteous and wicked. We have to revisit and put into perspective the concept of punishment and reward. And of course, when we have everything understood better, the Mishnah will make more sense. The question is not, I'm not trying to prove that God is not compassionate. I'm trying to look for a better, a deeper understanding of the Mishnah. You see, something that you put a great deal of effort into, and then it's lost, you feel very bad. If you didn't put much effort into it, alright, so you didn't put effort in. The thing can have the same exact value. For a person that scrimped and saved and finally bought something, and then it, they lost it, and then it got destroyed, they're a lot more distressed than somebody to whom money means nothing. Say, so wrote a check, check in, check out. It doesn't mean anything. Or when you get something as a gift. People value things that they worked hard for more than things you get as a gift. Mm-hmm. And that's a basic principle, by the way, in Judaism. That's where God makes us work for things. Because we value it more that way. That's the whole reason for all those challenges and all the difficulty. God wants to make us appreciate the life that we have. Right, let me first tell you why you're right. The Hebrew language is a very telling language. It's very exact. And there are no two words in Hebrew that mean the same exact thing. In English, there are descriptive words that mean virtually the same thing. And it's just a lot of fun to speak and use six ways to describe something. If you like language, you like to do that. But there isn't really an intrinsic difference. Or which word is used first, or which word is used second. Some words in English are very exact and are misused by people. But other words, actually, they could have a number of different terms that mean the same thing, because English is a hodgepodge of different languages. So an expert or a guru can mean the same thing. Only guru was imported to English from Sanskrit or from, from an Indian language. And a maven is imported from Yiddish. And an expert is an Anglo-Saxon word, but they're all part of the English language today. The Hebrew language is a perfect language because it comes from a perfect source, namely... God. We believe that Hebrew is a language that was divinely created. I'm, talk, I'm talking about biblical Hebrew, not modern Hebrew. Modern Hebrew is based on biblical Hebrew, but it is not biblical Hebrew. So, biblical Hebrew is God's language. And when the world was first created, the Torah believes that everybody was able to communicate right away. It's not like that's the Stone Age people figured out this is fists, and this is cheese, and this is bread, and they decided on words for different things. In Hebrew, that's called Lashon Heskemi, which means we made an agreement. Let's call this a table. Everybody agree we call this a table? Everybody agreed. Done. It's a table. What should we call this? Let's call it a cup. A cup? Everybody agrees? Okay, we call it a cup. There's nothing intrinsically cup about the cup, or nothing intrinsically table about the table. In fact, we could have called the cup a table, and the table a cup. Would anybody lose sleep over that? What's wrong? Who cares what you call something? 
But the truth is that all of us who come from English-speaking countries meet people who come from other English-speaking countries and we use the same word for different things. And we mean different things. Sometimes it creates a little bit of confusion. Especially in socio-emotional issues. People say the way they feel and people are hearing something else. So the words are just agreed upon. Whereas the Hebrew language is an intrinsic language. It's an essential language. When a shulchan means table, it's because the letters shin, lamet, ches, nun relate to the concept of a table. This is a mystical idea as well as a philosophical idea. Now, in Hebrew, there are numerous words for speaking or for saying something. But none of those words mean the exact same thing. Every one of those words have a different connotation. The word amira. Amira means to say. The word amira, which means to say, always connotes a compassionate or kind type of exchange. If somebody was Omar, that means they said it, it's always a light. It's not a heavy-handed, it's not a commanding type of language. They said, I said this, you said that. It's not definitive, it doesn't have to be that way necessarily. And it certainly does not have a dictatorial sound to it. That's Amira in Hebrew. Dibur, on the other hand, which also means to speak, connotes a certain force, a certain discipline. Dibur in Hebrew means to speak forcefully. So, for example, the Ten Commandments, which is a typical mistranslation of the Bible, it doesn't say Ten Commandments. Ten, it would say, Aseret HaMitzvot, it would be Ten Commandments. It doesn't say it, it says Dibrot. What does Aseret HaDibrot mean? Aseret HaDibrot comes from the word Dibur. God spoke. So some people translate it as ten sayings, but it's not really a saying because it doesn't say Asara Amirot. Dibur is a harsh, very dictatorial type of word. The Ten Commandments are not for negotiation. God said, Thou shalt not. And as one wise person once said to his friend who was disobeying the Torah with all kind of rationale, he said, which part of thou shalt not do you not understand? <laughs> thou shalt not means don't do it. Plain and simple. You like it, you don't like it, it's comfortable, it's inconvenient, it's irrelevant. God said don't do it. So whenever you have that kind of communication with somebody, you say don't. That's called dibur in Hebrew. Vayidaber Hashem al always indicates there's a certain force over there. Whereas the concept of Amira is a soft-spoken. We find this example with regard to the original message that was sent to the Jewish people that they will be getting the Torah. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Ko somar lebeit Yaakov. So you, you shall say to the house of Jacob, Visagid, and so you shall tell lebeit Yisrael to the house of Israel. So what is it, two Jewish people? Some of them are called the house of Jacob, and some of them are called the house of Israel. They had a synagogue rivalry, Beth Jacob and Beth Israel, they're fighting with each other. <coughs> so the Gemara tells us that Beit Yaakov refers to the woman. Beit Yisrael refers to the men. That's why the very famous girls' school is called Beit Yaakov. That's what it's based on. You see that? You look so surprised, everybody. A lot of Jewish things are based on deep reasons didn't just sound poetic. So Beit Yaakov means the house of the Jewish woman. 
Now the interesting thing is that the difference is not only in Beit Yaakov and Beit Yisrael, but what he should tell them. It says Kotomar and Kotagid. Why does it say Tomar and Tagid? So Rashi says, Moshe Rabbeinu need a little instruction from Hashem. This was communication 101. God says to Moshe, when you speak to the woman, speak to them softly. Though you don't have to worry, they'll understand, they'll listen to you. <coughs> Ko Tomar. Tomar comes to the word Amiru, which means soft. When you speak to the men, you better give it to them over the head. Koisagit. <laughs> the men don't understand any other language. So therefore, God told Moshe, interestingly, to first speak to the woman and make sure they were on board with the Torah. Kosomar Lebes Yaakov. After he signed the woman up, then he went to the men. Because Moshe knew that even if he wouldn't be able to get through to the men with a sledgehammer, the wives would get through to them. So <laughs> the main thing is, you have to get the ladies on the side. That's what God told Moshe. The point of this little snippet is, that Amira has a soft type of connotation. What are the ten mechanisms that God created the world with, which metaphorically compared to speaking? What's the word we use? Take a look in the Mishnah. Asara, ten. Ma'amarot. Ma'amar comes from the Hebrew word. What would be the root word for ma'amar? Amar. Aleph memresh. Amar means soft, soft spoken right, kotomar lebeit Yaakov so in Hebrew the word amira means something which is soft something which is compassionate, something which is pliant, not something which is very very stern or reprimanding in its tone that's the meaning of asarim amarot now creation was no simple matter because for physical or material existence to just start to exist means that there should be something that God creates that doesn't recognize God. How does that happen? How can a creation not recognize its creator? That makes no sense. The natural result of creation is that the creation should recognize its origin. It should know where it comes from. That's only normal. Sometimes we like to deny the person who did us a favor. Sometimes we treat parents inappropriately. Sometimes people who do us a great favor, we treat them inappropriately. But deep down, we feel guilty about it. And we know it's not right. Why? Why? Because you know the truth. How is it that God created a world that doesn't know the truth? A world that ignores the truth. And the more people delve into the study of natural sciences, the more some of them find reason to deny the truth. Not everybody. Some people look at the sciences and have a deeper appreciation for creation. But that has to come when they have a predisposed credo. Say, yes, I believe in God. Now that I believe in God, let me, come and, let me examine creation. Let me analyze through scientific lenses. But if somebody wishes to be atheistic, science can become a perfect tool for the advancement of those philosophies. Although it's not really logical either because everything has to come from somewhere. Some of you may have been there, Rosh and I shared a little, a little joke. There was a group of scientists that finally figured everything out. They came to God and said, okay, God, we don't need you anymore. We have everything figured out. We'll start making our own people. God says, no problem. Get to work. Show me. So the scientists start gathering dirt together. God says, give me back my dirt. <laughs> everything has to start from somewhere. 
So even science will identify cause and effect up to a certain point. And then say, so what started that? Where did the original molecules come from? Well, they just came. How? Where did the original energy come from? It has to start somewhere. And the fact that it evolved in so perfect and symmetrical a manner indicates that there is something or somebody or some force that was guiding all of these things. So it makes perfect sense that there is a creator in, in as much as it makes no sense or something we can't really prove in an empirical way. But ultimately, an atheist is almost as much as a believer as a person of faith. Only they believe in something different. <laughs> there was a guy I asked to put on film a few weeks ago. He was here in Shofar Simcha. And most of the other family members put on film. And he said, no! I said, what are you getting so upset about this? He came to my house. He came to show. You're stuck here anyway. The service is another 20 minutes. What do you care? He says, respect my beliefs. I respect yours. Said, what are you talking about? He says, I'm an atheist. That's my belief. You have your belief. That's a very well said. Very well said. Being an atheist is also a form of belief, meaning it doesn't make sense. It's also a very convenient belief, because then you can do whatever you want. And you don't have to listen to anybody. And you don't owe it, own up to anybody. But be that as it may, the fact is, the world is not a place that naturally reflects its creator. And that's not normal. Why should the world not sense its creator? And the answer is because that's the way God created the world. The word olam, which means world, also comes from an idiom of the word helam. Helam means concealment. So God conceals himself and creates a world. Creation is by definition a concealment. In order for creation to take place, God needs to be concealed. For example, you have a child that's trained to go out and do whatever it might be. Whether it's to ride a unicycle or to juggle or perform or something special. And they have a coach. And the coach is helping and the coach is always there. And then the big day comes and the coach says, I can't be there today. So I need you. I can't do without you. You're always giving me advice. You're always telling me what to do next. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I train you up to a certain point and now it's time to do it on your own. That's when the child becomes independent. Independence means to be separate of a dependent factor. To separate from, to move away from. God wanted the world to be independent. Now, of course, the world is totally dependent on God, but God didn't want the world to see it that way. So God hides himself. He's there, but you don't see him. He's very much involved, but you don't feel it. And that's the meaning of creation. Now, in order to do that, would you need discipline? Or would you need a tremendous amount of giving? Try to put yourself in God's shoes. What do you think you need? To conceal something. What does one need? Discipline. Great amount of discipline. To restrain, to withhold. You need discipline. When we talk about God in kind or compassionate terms, the word that we use for God is usually kale. Kale is a, a, a god of, of kindness. Aleph Lamed. Or we use the word Yudke Vavke, the tetragram, which means Havaya or Havia, an idiom of creation, which is God who is merciful. When we talk about God in a disciplinary fashion, what God dictates, it's Elohim, the Lord. So says the Lord. Lord means I'm the boss. So Elohim is always a very, very harsh or, shall we say, dictatorial type of godly persona. That's the, the, the figure or the face that God assumes. That's when God's involved in ideas of discipline. So creation needs to have a great deal of discipline. And indeed it says, Bereshus bara, in the beginning, who created? Hello? Hello, Kim. It doesn't say Havaya, Yudke Vavke. It doesn't say Kale. 
It doesn't say Adnai, it says Elohim. Elohim denotes judgment, discipline, inner strength. So which word should we have used then to describe creation? Amira or Dibur? Saying, which indicates soft-spokenness or compassion, or Dibur? It's the way it is. Dibur. Because if God is now assuming the persona of Elohim, of judgment... So then, and speaking is the mechanism through which creation comes into being. So then what type of expression should Elohim make? The expression of Elohim should be described as Dibur. It doesn't say that. It says Omar. Vayomer Elohim. Asarim Amarot. Does everybody see we have like a dichotomy here? On one hand, creation needs discipline, strength. A, a very uh, harsh type of persona. On the other hand, the emphasis here, or, or, or the word that's being used to describe, is Amira, which means soft. So the Rebbe tells us that the way to understand it is by means of a statement the Medrash makes. It says, Initially, God decided He would create the world through the measure of Din, judgment. Everything would be exact. God saw the world couldn't be sustained that way. It would be too difficult if every little thing we did wrong, we had to give an exact, so to speak, calculation and reckoning. And if there was exacting payment or punishment that happened for every little thing, nobody would be able to survive. It would be overwhelmingly difficult. It's like getting a new job and you're getting judged on every minute. What did you do this minute? What did you do that minute? I can't fire it. I'm fired. I'm quit. I, I can't, can't work with this. The pressure is too intense. So, when Hashem first created the world, He brought in a measure of divine mercy. And so the world was created with using what we'll call the persona of din, of judgment, Elohim. However, when God actually created, it doesn't say dibur, it doesn't say vayidaber. It says... Vayomer. Okay? Everybody get this balance? So we have this Vayomer and Vayidaber. We have the idea of it's Elohim, so to speak, or it's God's judgmental persona that, that we're, we're seeing creation happen, or God is acting through that face, or acting through that expression. However, the vehicle, the mechanism that's being used is Amira. And Amira means soft, compassionate, Racham, and mercy. It's a balance. Now the truth is that mercy is always a balance. Because kindness means, I see no evil. I know no evil. I'm kind. I'm Mr. Giver. I give everybody. Who are you? Who aren't you? It's irrelevant to me. I want to give. The giver doesn't care. The true giver is unable to discern the one that is deserving or the one that is not. Because the emphasis is on giving. Is that a healthy situation? The, the, this idea, and this is a Kabbalistic concept not to be taken literally, but the idea of only giving is something that took place prior to our creation. And it says, God was creating worlds and destroying them. And the worlds couldn't be sustained. Why? Because always giving is not a healthy state of affairs. Imagine the person that always gives. Just think about it to yourself. I give whoever asks. What do you have? The United Nations. They give all the terrorists 
they give all the rouge regimes, they give everything away, except for the Jews. That's where they get very judgmental. Like the normal, a normal society, the sick society. When you have only giving, and there's no judgment, there's no accountability, you have a sick reality. A parent that always gives children is not normal. That's a parent who is a defunctional, dysfunctional, a parent who aborts their responsibility. You have to raise these kids. Oh, I have to raise them? I didn't know that. I just want to give them whatever they want. You want candy? Eat candy. You have a million cavities? Oh, figure it out. I don't know. So have a million fillings. What do you want now? You don't want to do your homework? Don't do it. You want to do it? Do it. You want to go to school? Go. Want to stay home watch TV? Watch. Whatever you want. Life is great. What are those kids going to be like? A normal parent has to reason, remonstrate, and sometimes discipline children. Because you can't always give. So we have one extreme pole which is always giving and that's it's not a healthy situation. Then we have the other extreme which is discipline. Everything has to be earned. Kid wants breakfast, if you go to sleep on time, you get breakfast. Why do you deserve breakfast? <laughs> Mom, I gotta eat it, I'm hungry. I'm sorry. You, you uh, didn't say please and you weren't respectful this morning, so starve today. Mom, gotta have lunch? No, no lunch for you. Why not? Well, you got a 65 in your test, you expect lunch for 60? No, sorry. <laughs> And the kid's not living a justified existence. He's not doing his job. The job is to go to school, he doesn't go to school. He goes, he comes late. Being disrespectful to the teacher. You don't do the job, you don't get fed, you don't get clothed. Starving, naked, that's your problem. Is that normal? It's totally ridiculous. You think adults are so much better? Imagine if every time your spouse wanted something, you'd say, well, let me see. Do you deserve it? And what did you do yesterday? Imagine if your spouse kept a little black book. Everybody's keeping black books all day. They have a whole list of marks. We'd all be starving. We wouldn't live in a home. Uh, and that is certainly very sad and definitely not normal. You live and let live. So most normal people, they are disciplined to a degree. Disciplined to a degree means, yes, of course I know that what's inappropriate is inappropriate. And what's appropriate is appropriate. But realistically, you have to readjust you can't follow the law book. It doesn't work that way. You have to be reasonable. Reasonable and merciful are the same concept. <laughs> what does merciful mean? Merciful is the kid says, could I please go on the family trip? Oh, no, you say. We had a deal. You were supposed to bring home good marks. You didn't bring home good marks. You're not going. The kid says, please, have a chmanis on me. You didn't have a chmanis. We had a deal. You defaulted. Goodbye. Have pity on me. My siblings are going. I'm... I, I'm the, I, 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 let's make a deal, let's try to work something out. Have Rachmanus. Okay, fine. Which mother could say no to that? Rachmanus means I'm able to recognize the situation for what it is. But the fact that I am aware of its deficiencies doesn't mean that I can't react. Yes, there's a problem there. I size up the problem. I see there's an issue. I'm able to judge. But, despite the judgment and the ruling, the actions may be a little different than what's dictated in the book. That's the concept of Rahmanus. So Hashem creates a world where not, there's not endless giving, where there is a little bit of law and order, but God quite, cuts us quite a bit of slack. And this is the idea of compassion. That's the meaning of a compassionate God. If we were all perfect, we wouldn't need a compassionate God. We would have a business relationship with God. You give, we get. We get, you give. It's all, everything's fine. Oi, Tata, of Rahmanus, God, have mercy on me. What kind of mercy? You did what you have to do, you'll get what you need. You didn't do, you won't get. What's, what's the issue? Where does mercy come in? The Gemara tells us, Moshe Rabbeinu went up to the heavens. 
This is just before the Torah is going to be given. And God is having this very, very strange prayer over there. He hears these words, Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, Chanun. God is merciful, gracious, always forgiving. He says, what is this? What kind of formula is this? Moshe doesn't understand. He says, if it's for Tzadikim, if it's for the righteous, why do they need so much mercy? They earned it. If it's for the wicked, let them be destroyed. So the Gemara says, God's response to Moshe is, okay, we'll see. We'll see. A short 40 days later, Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from the mountain, and there's a golden calf, and the people are dancing around it, and everybody has lost their sense of direction. The rudderless ship has become marooned. No, Moshe has to go to heaven, he starts to argue with God, and God doesn't want to listen. He says, I give him the Torah, 40 days later, this is what they do. Forget about it. Let them be destroyed, I'll build a new people. Moshe says, it's going to take a lot of time, God says, I have time. We'll create a people out of the desert. And what's a few hundred years to God? We'll create a new generation of Moshe's children. We'll start all over again. Moshe says, no, no, no. Hashem, Hashem, Keo, Rachom, Vachanim. He starts saying those words that he learned from God. God said, excuse me? Where did you get that from? Didn't you say that the wicked should be destroyed? To which Moshe responded, but you said that the wicked get mercy. And so, Moshe ultimately gets his way with Hashem. And those prayers that Moshe invoked, or those ideas that Moshe invoked, in order to pray to God for the Jewish people, which is Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachon, Vachanon, are the basis of Moshe Rabbeinu's prayers that led up to the forgiveness of Yom Kippur. Hence, a very, very key part of our Yom Kippur service is Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachon, Vachanon. And it's actually phraseologies that were written by Moshe Rabbeinu himself. And that's what we invoke in Yom Kippur night. Yom Kippur Day. And then just about any other time we need mercy. Mercy means, yes God, the people behave wrong. I'm a bad, I'm a bad boy, I'm a bad girl. I did everything I shouldn't have done, but. But what? But have Rachmanus. It's true. I recognize it, but have Rachmanus. So the concept of mercy is, God is compassionate. And that's what creation is all about. That's why it says Ma'amaris. Creation is done with a great deal of discipline. Because only discipline could produce a world. But, there has to be compassion mixed in. Which takes us back to our original question. You look at this Mishnah, you say, where's the compassion? You were all right. You said God is compassionate. You didn't even know how right you were. Because the word ma'amar means, which means compassion. Soft-spoken. So God is compassionate. He has to be compassionate. It says it in the Mishnah. Where's his compassion? It doesn't add up. God creates a world so that the wicked should be punished? Okay, so let's go back into the Mishnah. What does the Mishnah really say? What, what, are we, what is this teaching us? What lesson do we learn from the fact that the world could have been created with only one? What's the word for punishment in Hebrew? It says lehi para, but I want you to stop and think now. What's the word for punishment? Onish. It should say laha anish et To punish the wicked. It doesn't say that. It says lehi para. What kind of word is that? What does lehi para mean? Lehi para is a verb. What does the word peraon mean in Hebrew? Peraon. 
Payment. Payment. Pay your dues. Para, pay reish ayin, is a root word for payment. That's what it is. It means to pay. To exact payment would be lehi para. Lehi para in Hebrew, the word lamed and hey in front of a word, turn it into a verb. So you have a noun which means payment. Lehi para means to exact the payment. So it doesn't say to punish the wicked. They have to pay. Okay, so that also sounds like punishment. You've got to pay for your deeds, right? So you've got to pay for it. So then why doesn't it just say punishment? If you have to pay for it, so say punish. So how do we understand punishment? From a, from a secular, I won't say secular, it's not secular. From a other religious perspective. And other religions, not all, but many other religions. The concept of punishment is usually associated with who? Who's the punishment guy? No. Other religions? The devil. The devil, right? They tell a story that one day everybody's sitting in a service in front of the congregation. All of a sudden there's a flash, an explosion. And there is a guy with red skin, a long tail and a pitchfork. Everybody shrieks at the top of their lungs and they run to the back of the room. One guy is sitting there calmly, doesn't move. He says, aren't you afraid of me? He says, no. Do you know who I am? He says, yes, you're the devil. So why aren't you afraid of me? He says, I'm married to your sister for the last 40 years. <laughs> In the Jewish faith, there is no devil, by the way. The devil doesn't exist. There is a Satan, there is Satan. But Satan is merely one of God's henchmen. God created a Satan. Why would God create a Satan? Because in order for us to achieve greatness, we need to be challenged. 